What's up, my friends? Welcome to the show. Today I speak with Eric Godsey of the Aubrey Marcus Empire and Fit for Service. Eric is one of the four Fit for Service coaches. And on the show today, we discuss some of the exciting things that Eric and Aubrey and the crew are working on, including the Fit for Service Academy, sorry, the Fit for Service app and the Aubrey Marcus Academy, which is a revolutionary new social media platform that doesn't hijack your limbic system along with eric's perspectives and my perspectives on this year's crazy events and eric goes into his recent experiences with ayahuasca at soltara healing center here in costa rica and of course this episode is brought to you by soltara healing center if you feel called to work with ayahuasca medicine in the Shipibo tradition, there really is no better place to do it. You can learn more about Soltara and about ayahuasca by checking out soltara.co or by calling 1-800-397-1730. If you like today's episode, please subscribe. If you really want to do us a favor, that would be fantastic. Leave us a review on iTunes, drop us five stars, and if you got an extra moment, write a few nice words about us if you like the show. And of course, we're on YouTube. You can subscribe on YouTube and like up the episode. That is always much appreciated. So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your attention. I love you. And please enjoy this episode. Until next time, much love, my friends. And we are live with my friend Eric Godsey of Austin, Texas. Is that your original birthplace, Eric? No, I was born in Monterey, California, and both of my parents were in the military, so I moved around, been to all four corners of the U.S., but now this is where I'm stationed. Stationed in Austin, working with Aubrey Marcus and on it, or even on it at all, or just Aubrey? Uh, I worked for on it for two years and then I left in January of last year. And now I work with Aubrey for the last year and two months for a fit for service. Straight up fit for service and changing people's writing. lives. Yeah. And book writing. That's awesome, man. You guys have got some seriously cool stuff going on there. Thank you so much. You do too. <laughs> Well, you know, we're kind of all part of this amazing movement that, you know, Aubrey has had no small part in creating. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, probably both of us would not be having this conversation right now unless Aubrey went on Rogan back in 2011 or whatever it was yeah. or 13 or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, I guess Joe's kind of uh, one of the the first pioneers who started talking about this stuff in public, Aubrey got on basically, you know, right away. And those two guys have been have been creating awareness about psychedelics, DMT, ayahuasca, and all this stuff since like, I mean, yeah, that kind of range that like 2012, yeah. 2013 range. And uh, you yeah, actually just listened to your podcast with Aubrey last night his his download yeah so you know it was interesting to hear that that your very first podcast <laughs> that you listened to was uh was with with aubrey and joe talking yep. about aubrey's first ayahuasca experience so pretty crazy that we're that we're both here right now yeah it's so interesting to take moments in the present and feel back into the past and feel how like this one event caused this huge ripple that shaped so much of your life. And then to try to feel into how many of those moments are happening right now that I'm going to look back in 10 years and be like, oh my God, that weekend, everything changed, but we can't know it in the moment. And that absolutely was one of my life-changing moments was, I remember where I was. I was in my mom's garage. I was 19. I just failed all my fucking classes in my first year of college because I didn't know how to study. I'd shaved my head because I was having a whole fucking crisis. And um, I don't even know how I found it, but I saw the word ayahuasca and I had no idea what it was, clicked on it. It was the first podcast I ever heard. I didn't know who Joe Rogan was. And to hear these two men talk about consciousness, like 
I grew up in a small town of 8,000 people. I never met anyone who didn't either work in a factory or work for the military. And like to see that those type of men were allowed to even exist, you know, because the only examples outside of your hometown before the internet blew up was fucking movies. And that shit's fake. You know, but the beauty yeah. about a podcast is you can actually feel someone's authentic energy. And just to see that as an example, it changed my life. And now I'm here. Yeah, man. Uh, the point you made about, you know, analyzing the present, kind of looking back at the past, it's like, you know, at any given moment in the present, as we, as we kind of proceed along this, this linear, you know, path of our lives, and you run into struggles, you have a breakup, you lose a job, someone dies, you get sick, just all of the tragedies that seem to happen, you know, that feel, that feel like you don't want them to happen, like they're difficult or, or what have you in the time. But then you get to a point like this, some, at some point further along that, that, uh, that trajectory. Right. And you look back and it's like, well, yeah, that happened. And then I, it moved me in this direction. And then, you know, that was perfect. And then I got here, which is perfect. I just can't imagine looking back on life. If any of those things had gone differently, right. Then I would have been in a different place, which seems unimaginable. Absolutely. And I was talking with a friend and I was like, I wish there was a word for that feeling. It often happens in psychedelics, but it can happen in other ways where you feel the perfection of the present moment is so profound that it instantly justifies all the suffering that you've ever had. And you can see how it's not just a fortune cookie cliche. It's like a felt knowing in the core of your heart. Everything that happened to me is perfect. And once you feel that once, maybe you can write it off as a fluke. But once you felt that like three times, I'm now at a point in my life that when I'm suffering, there is a part of me that knows you're going to have another one of those moments. And can you have that awareness in this moment, knowing that six months from now or eight months from now or a year, maybe three or four years, you're going to have a moment where the perfection is going to be so fucking overwhelming that you're going to feel that this thing that's happening right now is perfect. Can you bring any grace to this moment while you weep and cry and break shit? Yeah, bro. Uh, that actually happened to me in a super profound way in my very first ayahuasca experience. I'm surprised that you don't have a word for that. Right? That's something that I think Eric Godson <laughs> should either have a word or create a word. Absolutely. For. The next time we talk. We I will have, have a word, word for, for you. Yes, sir. <laughs> so what are you guys up to there? with with Aubrey with fit for service it, it seems like you guys have gotten a renewed inspiration and motivation and you know the last few years of fit for service have just been overwhelmingly positive I've seen changes in Aubrey like he he was just here he's a different guy man he's just like this soft kind of puppy dog right now that's just like love just loving everybody loving life he's happy with his wife and um, you know, it just seems like fit for service. Just this dedication to service has brought out so much. Um, so, you know, what are you guys up to, man? What's what's got you excited about fit for service and everything Absolutely. that you guys are doing on that side? Yeah. So, one of the most beautiful things about fit for service is to see the transformation that it has brought in Aubrey. Like, I feel the most peace in him that I've ever felt in him since I've known him, and it feels like because he finally has a thing that feels like it's the full expression of what he is, you know, because as a CEO of Onnit, there's only so much of what you can put into that that's even legal, you know, and it feels like he's found something where it feels like it's a genuine act of service. And then the act of serving transforms you. And that's one of my favorite aspects of art is that when you really find an art form that calls to you, you learn the instrument, but the instrument is instrumenting you. Like it, you change yourself as you do the art and whatever your calling is, like that's exactly how you're supposed to be transformed. Like a musician and a writer don't perceive the world the same way. And it's because the act of the art that they've done so much has molded them. And it feels like he's found his art form, man, and it's fucking fit for service. 
Now, that being said, what I can feel that he's the most excited about is given the way the weirdness of the world has unfolded in the last year, um, there's a deep calling for like social media platforms that don't have algorithms that are basically programmed to hijack your amygdala to make you stay on the program as long as possible. And that these algorithms are more powerful than the computer that beat the grandmaster of chess at chess. And you, and the grandmaster of chess lost knowing that he was preparing to fight this computer. All of us are not grandmasters, don't even know that we're playing chess against a computer that's 100,000 times more powerful than that computer. And those algorithms are trying to keep you on the platform as long as possible by triggering your fear and your desires and all that shit. And we're seeing the unintended consequences of these things. And I can feel how passionate he is about how can we bring the magic of fit for service, which can only be held by 150 people. How much of that can we put into a social media platform? And then can we create a social media platform that isn't wired to fucking make you this addicted, broken, depressed thing, but it can actually be a place where the me from the past in the small town of 8,000 people, which I was the only weird one. Like, can you imagine me in a small town in the Midwest? Like, I was the odd man out and I couldn't find anyone that was weird like me. But now with the internet, if you know how to use it, you can find the other 10,000 oddballs in their towns and find your brothers and sisters. And so we're trying to figure out how do you bring the magic of a mastermind into a social media platform? And we're currently at the beginning stages of that. Is that the Fit for Service app? Yeah. So okay. there's an app that is for the mastermind that only has 150 people that's basically just there to help people connect with each other so they don't have to be on Instagram. Because one of the metaphors that somebody described to me is hosting a mastermind group on Facebook or Instagram is like you're presenting a beautiful, healthy meal in a fucking buffet of junk food. And you're hoping that the people mm. come and only eat that one meal and don't get sucked in by the sure. buffet of junk food. And by the way, there's 100,000 salesmen trying to bring you to each of the pieces of junk food. So we have an app that's just for the fit for service uh, members of the mastermind. But we're trying to cultivate a much larger one, which is called the Aubrey Marcus Academy, that how can we bring the transformative magic that you and I have fucking witnessed year after year in fit for service to a social media platform? And uh, we're trying to figure it out. That's excited, man. Exciting. And shit, I mean, forward thinking too. Really forward thinking and, and, and cutting edge. It's, it's characteristic of Aubrey. Um, when, I, when I think back about everything he's done really since he started going on Rogan, publicizing ayahuasca and psychedelics, talking about that, bringing, bringing uh, you know, kettlebells and, and battle ropes and all these unconventional fitness tools into the forefront, just really driving this, like, cultural movement, really. I mean, he, he, he drives culture. He creates culture and what he represents. And it's just, you know, he's created this huge community that has become fit for service and everyone that that follows everything he does and all that so it just seems fitting that now he's creating an academy that's just going to continue pushing the cultural envelope must feel like must be an honor to be part of that and, and to be helping with that and like you know be a major driving force behind that movement 100 percent. it truly feels like the work that i do is actually helping and it's something that I've thought about um, when I graduated for like two or three years. I really struggled with, do I bring my talents to academia and do I get a PhD in clinical psychology? Or would I be more effective at helping the greatest number of people by learning how to actually be an entrepreneur? Because one of the things that I learned um, in, the, in that like two-year period of really struggling with what to do is I read the book Sapiens. And one of the things that that book highlighted is the system that academia is predicated upon is the majority of your work is to basically get funding from governments or corporations. 
And it's almost impossible to do research that's not in the financial interest of the government or the large corporations. And just realizing like, fuck, even if I go give 10 years of my life to become an expert at trying to help people, I'm still beholden to a system that doesn't feel like it's optimized for human wellness, but that is optimized for profit. It's almost entrepreneurship in a way because you you have to kind of play the markets and you have to kind of play the demand, right? And the demand, well, you have to consider where the resources are coming from. And, and when you're doing research, you can't do research without resources. When you create a product, you can't create a product without resources. And uh, those resources come from having a demand for that product or when you're doing research, research. And, and that demand often, as you said, comes from government or business. And some of that demand can be nefarious, right? Yeah. One of the things I realized is if I learn how to run a company and I make a profit, I can use my own fucking profit to fund whatever research I want to fucking do. And my ego is big enough where I was like, I can figure that out. And so that's basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to essentially create like an online university that teaches the things that I wish I had learned when I was in college and then use that income to just do the research I want to do for the rest of my fucking life. That's basically what I'm trying to do. That's awesome, man. Um, the concept of being of service, yeah. it seems to be something that's easier now to do than ever. It also seems like a lot of people are going that direction with what they want to do. It seems like a lot of people are losing interest in typical lifestyles and typical jobs. And as you've seen with a high demographic of the, of the fit for service community, people want to share their, their education and, and share their advice and their traumas and, and coach and guide people <laughs> yeah. and, and, and everybody wants to be of service. Yeah. Do you see a wider cultural movement going toward being of service? There's a lot of really interesting things in that question that come up for me that I haven't voiced yet because I haven't been asked about it, but I can feel that it's coming up now. And one of the things that I'm feeling is, um, it seems like it's easy to make fun of all these people wanting to be of service if you are someone who have who has not experienced what it actually feels like to help someone you know that it seems easy like what i imagine is the archetypical redditor being able to make fun of the 25 year old who's trying to be a quote unquote life coach and i can see what they're trying to say but i can also feel the wounded child inside of their cynicism and one of the things that arises is some of the smartest motherfuckers on the planet, like Naval Ravikant, is confident that the way automation is going with the increase in machine intelligence, the only type of jobs that will exist, but there will be enough for everyone because everything is going to transform, is relational jobs. What humans mm. do with other humans that all the factory jobs will eventually be gone. All the trucking jobs will eventually be gone. A tremendous amount of every type of assistant or sectorial type of job will be gone. A lot of what experts do in the physical world with like engineering will eventually be gone. But the last, the thing that will not be replaced is what humans can do for other humans. And everyone, if they were willing to be open to it, could have a beautiful experience learning how to cook from someone whose their whole thing is to teach you how to cook while dancing to music or whatever it is, that there's an infinite array of ways that you can help other people. And like one of the things that I really focused on when I was in college, because like the idea of the singularity had just kind of entered the zeitgeist and I was spending a lot of time on like, what should I even learn how to do? Like what will not be replaced by fucking machines? And the thing that I got to is like anything that regards the human psyche will be the last thing that machines ever quote unquote take over if they can even do it ever. And so like this, this feeling of being of service from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it's probably the smartest move. I wouldn't say smartest, but of the top 10 possible moves that you can make for the next 20 years, it's a fucking powerful one. 
but also from an evolutionary biological level. You want to motherfucking transform your depression? You want to transform your anxiety? You want to transform your suicidal ideation? If you can find an authentic way to feel like you are of service to people that you love, your entire nervous system transforms. Like we are wired to want to serve a tribe. And because of the way culture has grown around us, we've developed the ability to completely cut ourselves off from a tribe and not die because we can order our food, we can have a home, but our, like, our DNA wants to feel the breath of our 10 and 20 closest brothers and sisters around us while we sleep. We want to go hunt with them. We want to wage war with them and try to survive with them. And being of service can connect us back to that primal need that I think is one of the reasons why so many people are so fucking sick is because they don't have it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. How has that played out this year when you look at so many people being isolated? Mm. I mean, we've, we've noticed, man, some heavy stuff coming down here. A lot of people coming down and unloading a lot of anxiety and depression and, and yeah. just, you know, frustration and uncertainty with, with how everything's going. But I've also seen a lot of, a lot of articles or yeah. a few articles about the increase in mental health patients and the lack of actual capacity to service them because there's just yep. so many right now. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, man. Um, so one of my favorite quotes that I use just to keep my mind from going fucking insane is um, don't ascribe to malice that which can be explained by incompetence. I love that one. And I just hold on to that because it's so easy to start to spiral into conspiracies. And a lot of conspiracies have been true in the past. And I know that a lot of the ones that we're talking about in 20 years, we're going to see the fucking documents. I'm like, I fucking get it. There's also a lot of shit there that's just not helpful at all. But with that caveat, it's so exactly the wrong thing to be doing for mental health that it's easy to tell a story that it's malicious. But my intuition is that it's not malicious. But if you want to maximize people's psychological fragility, if you want to maximize their dependency on the system as it is right now, if you want to maximize their ability to not be able to self-regulate their nervous system so they'll continue to buy your pills, they'll continue to consume your products, isolate them. We have not evolved to survive alone. If you feel alone, the, one of the craziest pieces of research that I found in doing the research with Aubrey for his book is, this, is the research on loneliness. And um, an insurance company did a study a couple of years ago where they surveyed like hundreds of thousands of people. And they found that one in four people reports not having a single close friend. And I believe it was something like uh, three in four people, no, I think it was one in three people reported feeling lonely. And that if you self-report as feeling lonely, your comorbidity rate, so the chances of you dying earlier from anything, basically, it's higher than if you're obese, than if you're an alcoholic, than if you smoke an entire pack of cigarettes a day, or if you live in a place with heavy air pollution. And that loneliness is not correlated with whether or not you are around people. It's correlated with whether or not you feel seen by the people around you. But the fact that it has a higher, it has the highest comorbidity rate of any psychometric data point we have, that it's higher than obesity, shows you, you are evolutionarily wired to feel like you're a part of a community. If you ever felt like you were alone, that meant you got exiled. And if you got exiled, you know, 200,000 years ago, that's fucking death. Your whole mm. nervous system has evolved to, if you feel like you are lonely, do anything you possibly can for connection. And that tends to lead to addiction, like a chemical response that can give you the felt sense of connection. It can lead to terrible codependent strategies with abusive people, and that's a whole fucking thing. And it is an unfortunate, I think, incompetent byproduct 
of our overreaction um, mm-hmm. and under like non masterful reaction to what has happened in the past year. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it seems like, man. I also agree on that. I don't, yeah, I've actually used that quote before when talking about this. See, I've got, I've got one sister on the far left who's a socialist straight up. I've got one sister on the far right who's <laughs> QAnon. Damn. Straight up. So she's Damn. she's full on conspiracy theory, 5G, Bill Gates, all that kind of stuff. My other sister is full on lockdowns, lock everything. They're not strong enough. You know, just just fully like even a mention of of nuanced approach is like, don't you know that, you know, mom could die if she got this or whatever, like just, just really, really heavy on that side. Um, and I really find myself kind of in the middle of, of both of those approaches. Right. Like I don't, I, I think, I think there was a huge overreaction. I agree. It still is a huge overreaction. I mean, this for, for what kind of disaster this was, it could have been a lot worse and we probably will see worse disasters, but the damage that was caused by the response is probably proportional to the damage that was actually caused by the trigger. Right. Or, or even worse, yeah. uh, as, as we go into the long term. Um, but I also, think this was just so chaotic and discombobulate and discombobulated around the world that it it could not have it could not have been a conspiracy in the sense that nation states were collaborating to isolate people to eventually get them you know get them more dependent on the system the only way i could see that is if the initial event itself was initiated as as a as an intentional trigger to send the world into this chaos, which right. wouldn't, wouldn't be, you know, beyond comprehension. I don't think there's a couple of things that come up because uh, I have a lot of people in my life that motherfucking love to talk and they love to talk conspiracies and they all love to bring new ones to me because of the way that I tend to respond to them. Like I'm super open-minded and I will walk them step by step through each of the steps and just flay whatever I see can be flayed, but don't dismiss it. So they actually love to bring them to me. So I actually like know about a lot of them. But one of the things that comes up for me constantly is because I've done so much work on how the human psyche functions, there's a lot of red flags I see in most conspiracy stories. And like the fundamental one is in order for most of these conspiracy theories to be true, you have to accept the assumption that there is a group of people who are essentially the geniuses of geniuses, like impeccable geniuses, and that they're also evil, and that they're somehow able to pass on their evilness and their genius of geniusness multiple generations. Like, this is what, like, if you really dig to the root of most of these conspiracies, they think it's transgenerational, et cetera. Um, and that one evil genius is willing to work with another evil genius, and that somehow it goes okay. They're not trying to stomp on each other's right. toes. Like they're just, they're like, let's get everyone else, but us too, we're cool. Right. And or us 30 or whatever. And then when you actually dig down into any of these conspiracy conspiratorial stories and you really kind of get to the roots, it almost always feels like a 13 year old is trying to write a graphic novel and they're not a good writer and they're not nuanced in storytelling. Like, like the simplicity and the, epicness of the white and blackness the conspiracies all of them or most of them feel so clearly like a 13 year old is trying to tell a really powerful story and that there's no nuance between the villain and the hero like all the great writers everyone's gray no one's white no one's black and i have yet to hear a conspiracy theory 
where if you really drilled down into the two teams where it's gray on both sides, you know, like it tends to be black and white, but this is a rabbit hole that I didn't know if you wanted to, to go down, but it's come up so much for me in the last year because of the people that I'm around. But what I personally find is every motherfucker that brings up a conspiracy theory within the first 10 minutes of a conversation in my life, all of them, incredibly smart, almost always men, young, and haven't found their dharma. Like they're not doing the thing in the world that sets them on fire. They tend to either be afraid, whatever that thing is, or there's some resentment around the life that they have right now. And it feels like it's the ultimate, like the world is so fucked up, unconscious sentence, so I don't have to try. That's mm. what I tend to see. Like it's always smart young dudes, at least in my life. And yeah. I try to offer that, that insight in a way where it feels like I'm not saying it about them, but to all the other people that I know. And I can see in their face that there's this moment of like, you know, like that they can feel that moment of like, fuck, that's kind of what this is. Like, I know that I'm actually not pursuing my dream to be a musician and that I'm working at this fucking bar. Like, that's the motherfucker I know talking about conspiracies. And so that's a whole, like, it feels like it's a coping mechanism for people to use so they don't have to fully buy into the nuance of the world because it's hard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely hard and getting harder and harder to make sense of these days. <sighs> yeah. Everyone said 2020 was going to be, you know, everyone's looking forward to the new year. Like it's just going to flip over like, okay, 2021, we're good to go. But yeah. Austin is fucking <laughs> falling apart. I don't know if you're aware of what's been going on here in Texas, but the ice storm. Yeah. Like uh full, full state electrical collapse. I mean, collapse is probably too strong of a word, but something like four and four and a half million people have lost power for at least three days. And in Austin, almost 200,000 people have gone without power for three days. And it's just like, it's motherfucking February. Yeah. And how many people are saying, are talking about a conspiracy, like a global warming conspiracy and a renewable energy conspiracy. I've seen so many posts come out sure. of guys I know from Texas who, you know, denounce uh, climate change and denounce Absolutely. renewable energy. And this is just fuel for the fire, right? Yeah. What's super interesting is I have yet to meet anyone who has ever talked about like, you know, a renewable energy conspiracy who actually did anything in their life about energy. It's mostly like bros at the gym. And it, yeah. it, it, it goes back to this thing where it's like, most of us picked a reality tunnel to see the world through as a child so mom or dad would love us. And most of us haven't shed that first reality tunnel. And we are just hunkered the fuck down, driving forward, collecting anything that we think will keep this car going and ignoring everything in the landscape that contradicts the car. And it's like, there's so much information that contradicts any one reality tunnel that like the ferocity with which you have to grip the wheel just gets more and more and more intense. But the beautiful thing about a psychedelic, and it doesn't have to be through a psychedelic, but there's like, there's quite a few ways where you can kill that first reality tunnel that you had to mm -hmm. pick in order to survive as a child. And all the most interesting people I've ever met are at least on their second reality tunnel. At least. Sure. No yeah. one that I vibe with is still on their first reality tunnel. No one that I think is interesting is still running the heart or the software that they got from the parent that they were trying to get the love from. The really interesting people are the one who are on their third reality tunnel or more. Because <laughs> what tends <laughs> to happen is people who get to their second reality tunnel, they've seen the light. They've gone through the transformation of like, that story about Christianity that I was given when I was young, it's not true. And now I'm a fucking atheist. And I was there for a long time. Um, but they think, and this happens in philosophy too. Like if you ever really get into philosophy, the first philosopher that you find, you're like, oh my God, this is it. Like it makes perfect sense. And then if you're willing to read a second philosopher, you're like, fuck, this person makes complete sense and they disagree with that person. But People who get on their third reality tunnel, those are people that realize, oh, there is no reality tunnel that can capture everything. 
So I will just hold as many as I want to that are fun. It's the person who's still on one or two that like they're so... The fact that you think that your political ideology can contain the infinity of the universe is fucking childish and it's only going to cause you suffering. And it's one of the big motherfucking problems we got going on. No, right. no philosophy and no politics can capture the whole fucking thing. And so like, it really feels like the tension is going to have to get so fucking intense where both sides break and we realize, oh, we got to learn how to juggle four or five different ways to look at the problems that are destroying the fucking earth as we stand on top of it right now, arguing about whether or not the grass is green. Where do you, how do you see that playing out in the U S how does it feel right now? And, and you know, where, where did it go after the election? Did it get any better? Did it get any worse? Did it stay the same after the, after the uh, election and, and how's it feel right now? Yeah. So what's interesting is what we've done in the U S is we basically have banned from every possible platform that we can, uh, the type of discussions that we don't want to look at. Like all the far right conspiracy places, we've banned them. And that is from a psychological, like from a Jungian psychology standpoint, that is the dumbest motherfucking thing that you could possibly do. Because now you are forcing them where we can't see them. And we're only going to see them when they explode forward. And so it feels to the people who want to be ostriches that it's better because we've banned from the public discourse the people who don't agree. But how I see that playing out, like if you look at how fucking human nature operates and how the past has unfolded, there's going to be explosions from that repressed underground. And that reinforces, that reinforces their conspiracy. 100%. Right. Like the beautiful thing about free speech is that if you let everyone talk, Stupid people are going to, people with stupid ideas are going to feel what it feels like to hold stupid ideas because they don't work and, and they get to test them out. But it's, it's more nuanced than that when it comes to most of these conspiracies. And it's a whole huge tangent that I won't go down. But basically, it feels like it's better. I think it's probably worse. How I see it playing out is I don't see a way that it plays out where it's beautiful. How I would like for it to play out is more and more people get off of the social media platforms that have these algorithms that are a hundred times more effective than deep blue at playing chess, but it's their chess is trying to addict you to their platform. And people get on platforms where they're able to connect in the way that they actually want to connect with other people and that the leaders that naturally emerge on those platforms take the like the divine responsibility of being a node in the network that doesn't skew the information that goes to their tribe like what i see is we need liberating technology that don't have these algorithms and then kind of a story or a zeitgeist for leaders that you are responsible for holding nuance. And you have mm. to resist the urge as a leader of being, um, I forget what the word is, but the more extreme you get as a leader, you will see a huge uptick in your following. And this has been true for every dictator that's ever existed. But the people that you're catalyzing are the most desperate, hurt type of people that the moment you step out of the zealotry that you've been accumulating, they're going to destroy you and eat you. And so like liberating technology and a zeitgeist for leaders where they see it almost as a moral obligation to be nuanced. Mm. Yeah. The leadership approach has to be beyond just manipulating people's emotions to get them to support you. It has, it has to be, our leaders have for too long not been as educated and as not, well, nobody's unbiased, but as nuanced as you say, right. As they should. So I can see that working. Um, 
let's uh let's shift gears a bit in the last uh the last bit here um we're we gonna rock we're gonna rock a, a flip uh we're gonna flip the script here afterwards yep. okay dope so maybe like a kind of a, a 15 minute uh recap of your your ayahuasca oh, experiences man. If you can do it, oh man, yeah. Try not to try not to limit it. You know, like try not to feel too rushed. But like, just just as a as a you know pretext, you you came to Soltara once, like last year or or year and a half ago, yep. and then you came twice, uh, or sorry, you came like for the second time just recently. So, how did those two? You know how did those two experiences interact with each other and yep. like kind of where are you at right now with that? Yeah, man. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, last year, the first time that I came to Sotara, that was my first time doing ayahuasca. And the big takeaway of my first time doing it was essentially ayahuasca was like, you are no longer a boy who is pretending to be a man. You are now a man who has a boy inside of you. And you are responsible for raising that boy. And it really felt mm. like she like dubbed me a king, but not a king of anyone else. You are the king of the boy inside of you. You need to own this power fully and fucking raise the boy inside of you. And the thing that they told me is you have to Mufasa your Simba. That was the way that they explained it. <laughs> That's great. And um, I had a really hard year. Uh, I basically fell in love with my best friend. It did not go well. It was tough. And I had to constantly learn how to show up as a king for the boy inside of me who was hurt, who was angry, who was codependent. Like, I got motherfucking challenged, man. And uh, when, so at the end of my first year, after I had this huge coronation and I felt like, oh my God, I'm a fucking king. It was so like inflated ego type shit. Uh, ayahuasca said, you have to come back in a year and we're going to judge how you've used this power that we've given you. Because essentially what she gave me was like this radical self-belief in my worthiness. And you know, you could fucking use that to just go be a fucking asshole for a year. <clears throat> And so I knew that I would come back in a year. Uh, I felt like I did not do a good job over the year with how I showed up for my inner boy in this relationship. I just fucking got shit worked. Um, so I was nervous. I thought that ayahuasca was going to be angry with me or mean to me or judgmental. And <clears throat> basically the first two nights, the second time, were her just reminding me that I'm a king. Like, it was like she was just getting through all my bullshit, just reminding me, like, nah, bitch, you're good. You're good. But what about this? No, you're good. But what about this? No, you're good. Um, and that was to set me up for night three, which was the hardest night that I've ever had on a psychedelic, other than two experiences that feel like it was from synthetics, and it felt like they broke my brain, and it felt like I was going to be stuck forever. But this was the hardest one where I knew that I was being taught. And essentially, I had a dream the night before this third night of drinking. And the dream goes like this. Um, I'm in the like back area of an NBA arena, but it feels like an airport and I'm trying to find my exit. I can feel that I have forgotten my luggage. And so I turn around to go get it. And the area, um, it looks like a parking garage, has a piece of police tape saying this is a restricted area. I think in my mind, like, I can just walk under that and grab my bag. So I walk under it, grab my bag, the scene changes. Now I'm in the crowd of a coliseum. And in the middle of the coliseum is this huge monster. Its body looks like a jaguar, but it's like 10 times larger. And it has three long hydra-like necks. Um, and it has no eyes, no face, just huge mouth and rows of teeth. Also in the middle of the coliseum arena is a pavilion. And on top of the pavilion's a woman. And my awareness goes from being in me to now being inside of the woman who's on the pavilion. And I watch the monster like run up to the side of the pavilion in this really creepy way that like people move in horror movies. And then it jumps on top of the pavilion and starts ripping her flesh off with its three heads. And I feel her mm. fear and I feel her pain. 
And then my perspective shifts and now I'm inside of the monster and everything's in black and white. And it's like pulsating. It's like, it's fucking angry. Like the way everything looks, feels like it's angry and primal. And all I see is her underwear. And he's ripping apart her like abdomen and her underwear. And the awareness then falls into that hole that it made. And now the scene changes again. And now I'm inside of the body of this like overweight, like cliche trucker dude who has like a red face from too much testosterone. And he's violently fucking a child doll that looks like a girl. And I wake up and I'm like, this is the most disturbing dream I've ever had in my life. This is the dream you had while you were at Sultara the second time. Right. This is the dream before the third night of drinking. The so second on the, time. On the Wednesday right. night. Right. Okay. And there's a part of me that wakes up that instantly knows, God damn it, this is going to be my, this is the beginning of my ceremony, but I fucking ignored it all day. And then I got into the Maloka. I drank two cups, went to my bed. And I essentially had a long process where ayahuasca slowly walked me through what I'm calling the woman eater energy. But the archetype, the archetypical energy in the male psyche that is afraid of women, that hates women, that wants to hurt women, that wants to dominate women. It's the energy that rapes. It's the energy that exploits. It's the energy that assaults. And it took me step by step through how this energy has hurt my mom, how this energy has hurt my sisters, how this energy has hurt every female friend I've ever been close to, how it's hurt every partner I've ever had. And it showed me a lot of the ways that this energy unfolds out into the world. And it was so fucking hard. And um, at the end of that experience, I asked Ayahuasca, like, why did you have me look at so much female trauma? Because one of the things that she showed me is, except for a few instances as a teenager, like, I never put this energy out, but it's still in me. It's in everyone. But I asked her why. And she said, you have to look at this for your daughter. And I just started weeping because I know I'm going to be a father. And I know I'm going to have a daughter. I don't know how I know. I just know that I know. And I knew that she was going to, ex that she will experience this energy in the world. And that if I want to be the type of father that I want to be, I have to be willing to look at it with her. Because most fathers will look away from that energy and they leave their daughters out there alone to fend for themselves. Or they participate. Right, which is even more fucked. Horrendous, yeah. yeah. Monstrous. Mon yep. Monstrous. And then I slept for like three hours after that. I was like, what the fuck? I have another night of drinking. Um, and then on night four, I drank two cups again. And it ended up actually being incredibly beautiful. She gave me almost no visions, no content. It was just like she tucked me into bed. It was amazing. And like I had wanted a visionary night at, at some point where like I saw the future of my dharma, like I saw what I was meant to do in the world. And like, I wanted to see it super clearly. And a couple of people there had experiences like that. And so at the end of that last night, when I knew it wasn't going to come, I asked her like, how come you didn't show me my future? You know, like I kind of wanted that. And what she basically made me think of was a Terrence McKenna lecture that I heard a long time ago where he was like, do, do the thought experiment. If you were God and you experienced everything at once and you were all powerful and everything was at your disposal, what would be the most luxurious thing that you could possibly do? And in Terrence McKenna's weird voice, he was like, you would pick a body bound in time. <laughs> that was a terrible impression, but you would pick a body, you would be bound by time, and then you would walk somewhere that the most luxurious way that a god could travel would be inside of a body walking. Because it's a pace that it can never know. And the thing that I realized was, I don't want to have my future of my dharma shown to me. I want to walk it. And I felt like the huge crowning insight of my entire week. And that's basically it in a nutshell, but a lot more shit happened. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's awesome. So you got a renewed appreciation for each step along the way. Absolutely. Man, I was out. Uh, I just got out of the gym today. 
uh, at Soltara and I was walking down the lower path going down toward my car and I just had a moment where like it was just sunny early afternoon leaves blowing in the wind you know just kind of strolling just I just like had a moment where like I'm I can take so much pleasure just from walking right now, just from walking, just from looking at the sunlight, just from like, you know, seeing the sunlight reflect through the emerald leaves. And that gets lost a lot of times, right? We get too caught up in getting to the destination as fast as possible without just enjoying the steps, you know? Amen. (laughs) Right on, bro. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, take a take a fiver and we'll uh we'll 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 turn the tables here absolutely but, uh, again yeah. but hey brother thank you thank you so much for uh for joining me uh and making the time absolutely uh, man my honor and fucking awesome thank you so much for what you do in the world the daniel cleland podcast thank you so much for joining us today for the daniel cleland podcast we truly enjoy you sharing your time with us If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, these likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, shamanismo, curanderismo, from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica, check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. All kinds of great content nonstop coming out down the pike every day just for you. Thanks again so much for joining I appreciate it beyond words, and I look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting. If you want to reach out to me, there's a contact form on my website, danielcleland.com. Feel free to hit me up. I read every email and try to respond to all of them. Thanks again. Much love to you, and I hope we get to catch up soon. All the best.